If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Beautiful Humans Social Change Cast. Um, I'm Erin. And I'm Denisha. All right. So this episode, we are going to get a little personal, but it's going to be extremely relevant. We want to spend today talking uh, about consequences of oppression. And so there have been some things in both of our lives that have happened recently that we kind of went off the flew off the um, off the handle and decided to do a, a spontaneous episode uh, on the consequences of op- oppression so um, so Denisha like why, why don't you start us off and, and talk a little bit maybe some things that are going on with you recently and why you feel this is a, a much needed topic of conversation right now yeah um, all right so I think for me um, a lot of thoughts have been coming up for me as I continue on this journey. For a little back story, for those who are not aware, recently I've been doing um, workshops and webinars in the field, trying to fuse social justice and ABA together. And my background, I've been doing workshops and teaching about the systems of oppression for about 12 years now. So it's something that's not new to me. Um, it's something that, of course, I've always had a passion for. But I've always enjoyed it. Um, always enjoyed being able to provide information to people who have then decided to commit to being better people for others that inhabit this earth with us. And um, but something has been feeling really different about the work that I've been doing lately. And I have been struggling through presenting. I've been struggling through preparing for the work, and I'm recognizing that this is just very different from what I'm used to. And um, some conversations that I'm having with myself is like, what happens when you start internalizing messaging? Um, What happens when a new context is created? And now this feels different for me because it's tied to my professional work as opposed to being, you know, a passion project. But for me, I I feel like I've been anticipating responses based on a past learning history, um, whether direct or indirect, but dealing with people and what happens when you approach conversations that that are new and essentially, hopefully, causes a paradigm shift. But um, there might be some pushback or... um, 
frustration or denial. And so um, I've been having to deal with feelings of like getting ready for that. And I think I'm just anticipating to the point of like, it's, it's debilitated me a little bit, I think, in these past couple of weeks, or especially after this past weekend. Um, so yeah, I think that that felt important for me to, to talk about and have the space to put it all out there before we get knee deep in this journey. Like I've committed to it. Um, you know, I've, I've done this for so long, but I have never done it in the context of behavior analysis. So this is new to me and I want to continue to do it. But if I'm going to continue to do it, I need to be honest about why this is feeling different for me, honest about the things that are essentially scaring me in this process um, and giving me pause to keep going. So that's why, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Some pretty heavy stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's funny. You said, um, be honest a lot of times right there. And, uh, and I told you right before the show that uh, my partner had told me that I was prepping and kind of amping myself up and, you know, it's nerve wracking to be vulnerable and to be open. And so I actually have a sticky note that says, be honest, mm. like right in front of me as a, as a reminder that um, sometimes the best way to help people hear you is to be honest, um, you know, with yourself and then to express that uh, in a kind and compassionate way, you know, but yeah. with a lot of passion. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but those sound like some heavy things. And I think you're right. Like a, addressing a lot of these things now before we're knee deep for a waist deep, you know? Mm -hmm. um, because for me, a lot of these things uh, drove this project. So, um, but yeah, so for me this week, um, you know, it's, it's interesting being kind of in this new, you talk about new contexts. Um, I don't know, I've tried to figure out over the past couple hours how to how to talk about some of these things. And there are times in uh, my life that you, you know, we talk about identity and how we identify. And, um, you know, if that does not agree with some people, then they tend to uh, state their opinions or they state their opinions as the truth and as evidence, and that essentially disregards your identity. So for me specifically, when you're looking at like gender, um, and I'm, you know, attempting to educate people and there's, uh, you know, you know, we talk about gender as being a social construct, different than your physical sex that you were born with. And there, I mean, it's very convoluted. There's a lot that goes into that, but essentially that we can self-select our identity um, in terms of gender in whatever manner that we choose that aligns with us internally, with aligns with our expression, with, a, you know, that, that can create this, um, sense of, uh, authenticity that we feel that we then want others to know. And so when people outwardly state, uh, that essentially their opinion is different than my identity, they're disregarding my identity as a whole, and they're disregarding me as a person, um, and then to to use that essentially stating, I don't know if you've experienced this, where people say, um, I'm liberal, but da, 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 whatever, you know, they go to say, um, but essentially using their liberal identity as, um, you know, a platform that that makes their truth or their opinions okay, 
and because I'm liberal, I can state this, you know, um, you know, and, and so what then happens, especially when those opinions, uh, that disregard your identity, um, they, they happen in a space that you have designed to be safe for yourself and it infiltrates it with violence, you know, and it, it really wears you down. Um, especially when it, their behavior almost seems like a disregard for the feelings and, um, you know, the well-being of humanity in a sense. And I'm not saying that's their intention, but that was the result. Like that's what happens. And to not take their behavior and to, to see that as an issue, um, you know, can, it hurts and it harms and it breaks you down to your very core. And so, um, I think I was saying too, I was like, if you can, for me, if you can state your opinion in a, in a way and then walk away from a conversation completely unscathed, unharmed and leave somebody else crushed, that is a, a you know, a huge source of privilege that you have. Um, and you're using that and you're using that power, um, in a way that's harmful and it's violence essentially. And we're going to define what violence and oppression is. I mean, may maybe now is the perfect time to, to get into that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we do that, like I was listening to what you were saying and the comment about like, I'm liberal, but I can say this. I, for some reason, my mind just took me to like the limit, the limitations of like allyship for like, and thinking like, you know, I'm okay with you being something like, but there's this limit here of like how far we'll take it. Um, and I don't know if that's like a direct relationship, but it just kind of reminded me of that, like, uh, as a liberal, like, I recognize all of these things, but this is the extent of my mind, like, this is as far as I'll take it. Um, and then what you end up doing is, furthering like the feelings of oppression, furthering, like you said, the harm that's done for that individual. Um, and I didn't know exactly what happened or, you know, the story that um, happened over the past weekend, but I was telling my father, I was talking to him about it and I used the word violence to describe it. And just knowing the primer of like the initial and my dad said violence. And I was like, yeah, like violence is not all physical, like violence. And I think a lot of people get that misconstrued. Um, violence is a little bit more than that. And um, I'll go ahead and define it. And then I'll, you know, I can tell you a little backstory about what I said to my dad, but violence is defined by the World Health Organization as the intentional use of physical force or power threatened or actual against oneself, another person, or against a group or a community that either results in or has a high likelihood of resulting in injury, death, psychological harm, maldevelopment, or deprivation. And so there's two words there, a couple, but two words that I want to like hone in on, power. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about systems of oppression. Power is the thing that allows privilege, like if you have privilege, you have power, social power. And so that's necessary to, to point out. And then the psychological harm. So you didn't physically attack anyone, but you harmed them psychologically, mentally. Like you said, 
if you're able to leave a conversation and go on your, you know, uh, uh, on with your day and the other person that's left there to deal with the pieces, to deal with the sadness, the anger, the frustration, try or even left to deal with like the, who am I to the world questions? Like that's harm. That's violence. That is violence. And we should not take that lightly. Yeah. And I think that's a, a powerful word uh, that that we, we should continue to use in that context. Because when I hear the word violence, it it sits with me. It, it hurts. It um, I have almost a visceral reaction sometimes when I think about that word. And so and that same reaction started to come up as I was typing our show notes. And I was like, violence like that's I've heard you use that in this context. We've talked about situations that um, that I've experienced or you've experienced that did not involve, you know, physical aggression, but you define that as violence and an act of violence. And I think that psychological harm, because those I was hoping that was the word you were going to pick out, you know, and then even that, um, the threatened part too, you know, it mm -hmm. stood out to me when you, when you read that definition um, is, is a huge part of that as well. Like it doesn't actually have to happen, but you are threat. And so, for me in my mind, it's like what has happened is that safe space now um, holds a threat that that violence still can exist, still may exist. And so, you know, like I, the, the immediate fallout of dealing with, um, you know, acts of violence and acts of oppression, uh, you know, were, were super intense to, to the most degree I think I've ever experienced. Um, and then I kind of got this motivation back and I got really passionate about something. And then that kind of dissipated the next day. And it was like, it all kind of sank back in, in a different sense. And I think it was realizing that, um, that now there's this association and hopefully that will, that will dissipate over time. But, um, but it's that association because now it's a threat, mm -hmm. you know, those people still are there. Some of them, um, you know, and, uh, or it's the threat that there could be, you know? So I think it's really important that we continue to use that word violence. Um, I think about like course of control and things like that, that don't involve, you know, physical acts of aggression or, um, harm, but that do cause psychological harm, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, I know tonight we're talking about the consequences. Um, and so I don't want to really jump the gun, but when these types of things happen, these acts of violence, that now goes into your learning history, like your history bank. And so for you to have to come back to that space or to things that remind you of this mm -hmm. specific space, to now have to be met with remembering those situa that situation. And once again, just going back to this is the privilege that these people or this person had of interjecting their opinion over you. And, and so that really, you know, it frustrates me. I was telling you, Aaron, before the show that with my activism work, I'm rooted in Kenyan nonviolence. And that is the philosophy of Dr. King. And, um, being with a social justice group that really, <laughs> you know, continues to push that methodology forward, it just says that we are 
fighting against the systems of evil, not the people doing evil. And so because of like who I am, that has always been like hard for me because I want to like hold you accountable, like the person that did it. But um, I guess you can say that's like the myopic view. Um, but I guess with Kenny and nonviolence, it allows me to see the bigger picture that that one person, what they did, or these few people, what they did, it still hurts. It does not take away any of that. Um, they are one part of the larger picture. They are one part of the larger issue. And for me, when thinking about that or when these things happen, it kind of gives me my like, and so why do we keep doing this? Because this larger issue is still present. And so, um, yeah. You know, having to move past that anger and the frustration, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm really, you know, I'm really sad um, and sorry that these things continue to happen. Um, and I try not to be like the pessimistic side of me, like, unfortunately, <laughs> they're going to continue to happen. But like the other side of me is like, and then that's why you show up and you, you have to show up. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And it's and it's finding your people that you know that you can go to, you know, mm. that that are there regardless um, and that will stand up for you when you can't, I think. And we talk about accomplice behavior. And so I'm very lucky to have several of those, um, you know, that understand and that um, that I can reach out to. We call it tagging in is like, you know, when I can't. I'm going to be like, you know, and, and on social media too, like I just have to tag that person and they just, they jump in, you know, um, I, somebody, and I'll have to ask you about this. Maybe I can ask you after the show, but, um, as far as like tagging in, um, you know, us not having to carry for our specific identities, the burden of that, uh, change all by ourselves. So building that support group and, and being able to lean on people, um, I think is, is really key, um, you know, so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't, yeah, let's, let's define oppression real fast before okay. we jump into consequences. Cause I'm excited to get into that part. All right. Sure. Um, so I'm just going to reiterate the definition. If you have not listened to our reference show, it's there. I've already stated, um, it before, but the combination of prejudice and institutional power, which creates a system that discriminates against some groups, we often call them target groups, marginalized groups, um, and it benefits other groups, often referred to as the dominant identity group or the privileged group. Examples of these systems include racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, classism, ageism, anti-Semiticism, genderism. These systems enable dominant groups to exert control over target groups by limiting their right by limiting their rights, their freedom, and access to basic resources such as healthcare, education, employment, and housing. Um, I also went over the four levels though to to understand that it's not just about um, policies. It also is about the personal, so the values and the beliefs and the feelings that we hold towards other groups of people, um, the interpersonal, the actions and the behaviors that we engage in, institutional, so that those are the rules and the policies and procedures that we set forth, and then cultural level, which um, is more so about like what we dictate as beauty or what we consider the truth or right. And so... In our field, we might consider the truth to be what is evidence-based. Um, and culturally, 
for folks, what they might consider the truth, the right is the extent of their own learning history. Um, and so that is how oppression can show up. We, um, we did define it um, as a verse of control procedures utilized against individuals belonging to at least one particular identity group that falls outside of those dominant identity groups. Um, we also said that it could include limiting availability or controlling access to reinforcers. That's a large part of oppression. That's the system part um, that we'll get into. But one thing I think when dealing with oppression, I, I said it before on the show, it's important to center the voices of those who quote unquote fall outside of those dominant identity groups. Um, I don't know if we do that enough but definitely with this show, it's necessary for us to hear from the folks that we say we want to hear from and that we care about. Um, but tonight, I think it'll be good to talk about, like, what happens? Like, what are the consequences of oppression? Like, that personal feeling or the personal um, responses after being met with some of these things that I, I just or just went over Um on the personal or interpersonal, institutional or cultural level. And so what happens to to the other person, the listener? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I think a lot of those consequences go unnoticed by people, you know, because uh, personally speaking, I tend to hide that from a lot of people or they just don't understand, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, uh, so again, this is this is a super personal show that we're so we're going to talk about a lot of examples that have shown up um, in our lives, and I think I, I might want to like stop right here and kind of reiterate at least one of the fears that I have uh, is my words and um, you know my perceptions on how things happen or the language that I use being criticized and then being used against me in further acts of oppression, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think I would encourage people to just try to see past maybe some of the language that we're using, um, just to know that we're being very vulnerable and open and you're getting a inside personal experience, you know, to some of these things that um, a lot of people don't, you might not get the opportunity to see otherwise uh, because that is a value at least of mine and I think of our show is, and in order to do that, we're going to have to be vulnerable. So, um, you know, it's, it's more about somebody's experience rather than maybe the language that they're using. Can I say something about that too, be yeah. before we uh, move on? Um, I think that is how, I think that's something that we as analysts have to remember. Um, like when, when we can only listen to people when they use a certain language that we expect for them to, that's a bit of tone policing. Like you are, ex you're expecting me to give this to you in a way that's palatable enough um, for you to understand. Yet we're still speaking a language that you could like you're, it's a decision and it's a privilege that you're choosing to evoke over another person. And so when, when I speak, I'm thinking about, those who are not in this field, <laughs> but they're still talking about these real experiences. 
we are behavior analysts, but we are human. And so the things that we're talking about might be reflective of other things that some of our clients are also going through. Some of our colleagues are also going through and they're not putting that in a behavior analytic terms. And so if that's the only way that we're going to hear one another is if you nicely package it, then we've already started to lose sight of what the purpose of all this is, you know? And so I just wanted to say that a little bit. I probably will continue to say that. (laughs) No, it's something that needs to be reiterated. Like if I use the incorrect form of the term reinforcer or reinforcement or something like that, just, Mm -hmm. you know, like don't don't get so hung up on that. Can we look at the larger picture? Like infer what I'm trying to say, you know, our, our science is so heavy in a language that a lot of people don't understand. And one of the values of our show is extending beyond behavior analysis. And mm-hmm. so in order to do that, we need to use language that is digestible <laughs> to other people and, uh, and to other fields and general population, I think. So, um, but it's, it, I think my fear is like, it, is that being somebody picking out something that I say maybe out of context and using that to discredit me or to disregard what I'm saying as a whole. And so, um, you know, I talk a lot about cultural humility and the, the process of coming to a conversation to learn about somebody else's experience. And if you were there to criticize uh, and to pick apart and debate, then I'm not really interested in, you're not interested in learning. And I'm not interested in expending my energy into that any further. You know, so that's one thing I wrote down. I was like, there's listening to respond versus listening to learn. And so what, what are you doing right now? and being mindful of your behavior in that moment and what is your value, you know? So that's a preface for everything that's about ready to come. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so let's get into, let's get into what the research says about the impact or consequences of oppression. Okay. Um, Okay. So, I, these are just a few examples. I think that there are probably other folks who have studied this um, more intensely and have created a longer list, but these are just some examples that were um, outlined um, by, let's see, by David E.R. in um, 2009. So this research basically stated that impacts of oppression are the belief of inferiority, um, isolation, guilt, self-blame, and performance anxiety. Um, And so when I was reading this research, for me personally, I was like, oh, (laughs) you know, I felt or, you know, have ebb ebb and flows of all of these things. Um, I think about the performance anxiety specifically for me and, and what I mentioned earlier, that's what I've been going through, like anxiety about presenting um, or putting out this information. And I think it also has to do with just the nature of our field, being people that are philosophic doubt is great. Like, obviously, that's what we believe in. Um, but wondering what happens when that philosophical doubt is backed in bias already. And so you have people that are in our field that are extremely intellectual, 
extremely smart. And that's not to downplay my own intelligence or intellect, but there are people who will use the nicely defined words to reinforce their own status, their own social status and the status quo. And I don't know if I'm ready for that. And I think anytime that it's time for me to speak, I start thinking about what happens when I meet that person. And um, this past weekend, because I had such a whirlwind weekend of emotions and I'm so, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Um, Because of that, I just remembered like, I learned this lesson already outside of this work. I have to take care of myself. And there are going to be some conversations that I simply will not engage in and just will have to say, and that is okay. And (laughs) you can have this well put, you know, definition of why, you know, racism doesn't make sense to you or heterosexism isn't real or whatever it is. And I'm just going to say, you can have it. You can have it. Um, And so I think that's something that I need to do to protect myself, but recognizing that that is a, that is a, an impact that I've been dealing with lately. Um, Yeah. No, it's like what I just said. My energy is um, limited. You know, we all, (laughs) we all have so much energy. There's only so many minutes in a day. Um, And I really like the way you just said it is like, okay, that's, that's okay. And just turn around and walk the other way. It's, it's choosing to have conversations with people uh, who may have the same perspectives as that person that you just walked away from, but they're willing to listen to learn. And so it's, where do you expend that energy? Um, And then being a model for that too, but it's so hard when then some of those other things that you just lifted, listed off show up too. You know, it's so complex into to what this happens. Um, you you mentioned performance anxiety. Uh, the two that showed up for me were isolation and guilt and self-blame. And so here was probably one of the most prominent thoughts that showed up for me, that still show up for me um, multiple times a day regarding this incident that happened last week. Um, you know, the day after I, like, A, I shut down. Um, I don't know if anybody heard from me, maybe a couple people. Um, I jumped off social media like I was gone, like I bailed. Um, I couldn't be in that safe space anymore. Um, it hurt. Uh, even though there were people like rallying around and it felt good, but it was still like that. Um, that's what I needed to do to take care of myself in that moment. And, um, and then set in this self-blame and this guilt. And it was like, was I being really sensitive? Like maybe I was like, that's, that's exactly what started to happen. I was like, was it that bad? What that person said? Like, I don't, maybe like, it's just their opinion. Like I should, I should be able to let that bounce off of me and fall back and it not matter. Like that person doesn't really matter to me. Um, why? And then it started like, why does it bother me that bad? And, and so I had to like dig in and you do like, that's the isolation part too, is then you start get stuck in the, in your head and have, um, you know, these, uh, I call it spiraling. It's like where your thoughts start to spiral and sometimes they become irrational or logical or you just start to question yourself. And, um, so 
but that's those are the two and then inferiority you know is is just um i mean that one didn't stand out to me as much but definitely you're like i'm i'm one person and even the people that are supporting me they they don't understand you know i appreciate them without a doubt but um and then the impacts that go beyond that where it's like <laughs> i think for most people there's like a threshold of how long things should bother you for and once they've reached like that, you know, you can't, you have to pretend like it doesn't bother you anymore, you know? Mm. And so, um, and whether I'm perceiving that or not, but it's like, okay, like, I feel like I should be good now, but I'm not, but I feel like the rest of the world is ready for me to be good. So I have to go on kind of putting on this false face in a sense and, and being inauthentic is like, it hurts. Like I can't, I can't do it. And so then that's where the isolation then comes back. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's, it's something that folks who fall outside of the identities um, or the specific identity that we might be addressing, you could empathize with that person, but you're not going to understand that experience. That is, it's, it lands differently for, for you than it would the other person and it impacts them differently. And at the end of the day, no matter how much sadness that I could feel for my um, fellow humans when they go through their things, I don't know exactly what that feels like because I have not personally experienced it. And, um, but the part you said about like having to just show up anyway and move on because you think that other people are expecting you to, like that resonates, that resonates so loud for me. Um, and thinking about like, how do we create space for, for people so that that isn't for like space for you not to be okay, whether it is a month later a year later, I'm still thinking about this thing that happened to me because I can give you countless of examples of things that still bring me right back to that moment years later. So why would I expect you to be okay like, and show that you're okay? Um, and, and I think that also is the, like you said, like it's the impact of like even feeling like you have to be because other people are not going to um, be okay with you still like having feelings of this particular moment in time. Um, yeah. And I don't know like what, what to say, like, like how do we show up in those instances? Instances. Um, are they through check-ins? Are they through, you know, I know I, I feel like one part is like when, when people are having, you know, problems just in like their own lives. I feel like sometimes people don't want to rehash for them or like bring them back to that moment. So they avoid it. And they're like, I'm hope I'm hoping you're okay. But like, if you need me, let me know. Like, you know, people say that when you're going through things, like if you, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. If you need me, just let me know. And that's like giving you space to, to say like, I'm here. But then at the same time, it's kind of like, are they really going to tell me if they're not okay? Like, how do I handle right. that? Right. Yeah. I know it's, there's such conflict when it comes to that. Um, you know, and, and for me, like this past week, like I was in a place 
where I like ghosted people for, for days. And then I came back around and I was like, thank you for sending this. You know, I, I really appreciate it. Um, but sometimes some of those things do feel overwhelming to talk about it over and over and over again. But the amount of support does for me at least help. But I think it's like, it's asking permission, like, Hey, what do you, what do you need? You know, what do you, what do you need me to do? Um, if, if you're true, if, if you're genuinely interested in being a, you know, a person for that individual to lean on, um, it requires putting yourself out there and asking, I think for me, at least, um, like I get where it's like the, I've done it. I think we've all done it is the, is the, it's the touching ads kind of like patting somebody's shoulder. It's like, I'm here for you. Like you said, <laughs> let me know if you need anything. Um, and it's with good intention. I think that's it. It's, it's yeah. all, and I assume positive intention for sure to a fault at times, you know, where I'll get myself sucked into a conversation and then realize that their intentions are not positive. And now I'm in a position where I shouldn't be. So, mm. um, I think all of that, but as far as the support that goes into that, I, I don't know. Sometimes it's what happens after all of that or, um, like I said, being able to tag somebody in and have them go speak. Like we said, we don't you don't speak for them, right? There's permission. There's things, at least in my life, that I've set up where I have people and I'm like, hey, um, if I tag you and I say, hey, can you address this? That's your cue to go do this. There's a group out there too. This is what I was going to ask you earlier. I don't remember the name of it. I can't remember. But essentially, if you get stuck in like a social media, from my understanding, if you get stuck in a social media, you can tag this group and there's like volunteers. That, do you know what it is? Yes. I don't know the name, but I know exactly what group you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what are your we thoughts We should find on that? that name and put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, I, I think that, yeah. Um, so for me, I remember when I was in college and I was taking a sociology class. And that professor said, if you ever want a reminder about how the world really is, go look on YouTube and look at the comments. Go look at the, go look at YouTube for any topic. Um, and we were specifically talking about race this day, but specifically go and look on YouTube about anything that has to do with black people and look at the comments. And I went and I looked and I shut myself in my dorm room for hours crying, yeah. bawling. Because I was experiencing things on my campus. And you try to believe that this is just this, like this is just this context. And then, but it was this teacher that gave me this awareness that no, this is larger than this. Like it's it's not just here. And um, so that the stuff that happens online and like what that can do to you. Um I think I think it's great for a group to say, don't feel the need to fight to be recognized or to have your existence understood. We got you. We'll do that for you. Um, for me personally, I stay out of the comment section now. I think for mm -hmm. a little while I used to. Um <clears throat> I'm not I'm not gonna win the world in the comment section. I don't think so. No. And what I've learned about the comment section is people are not there to learn. No. <laughs> Bye. Like that's where I'm not like expending energy. I have no desire to do that. Mm -hmm. 
Not in, like not with those specific conversations. I don't think like I don't think people are there to learn. And if they are, they their phrasing of their questions will alert you if they're being genuine or not. Mm -hmm. um, but the ones who are saying some really hateful stuff online, I don't I can't I, I don't even want to look at it. Like I know if it's a certain headline, I'm not looking at the comment section. It's just not going to happen because that is going to take a, a toll on me for that day or that for the next day or however long it takes. And um, I, I personally don't want to have to expend that energy. Something I was saying this weekend to um, a woman that um, led the conference that I presented at, we were talking about showing up for people and just being in touch with what people, other people are going through related to their social identities. So what I said to her was, and this goes back to what we were just talking about, about just asking, like, is there anything that I can do for you? Like, just checking in, how are you doing? Like, sometimes that means the world because I can't tell you how many times that I've had to sit through a shooting of someone in my community, a police shooting, or had to sit through some type of community issue and then turned around I had to turn around and go to work and nobody said mm -hmm. anything no one's checking on me yeah but I was in tears walking into this space but I just had to put on a happy face and I said it in the context of what's happening right now and what's going to happen I think September 8th is the day where folks are going to start arguing if the LGBTQ population has a right to be just fired from their work. I said, can you imagine working with somebody or being somebody from the population and they're arguing that in the Supreme Court and you have to go to work and you're wondering, is, is my job going to take, if they decide to move along with this, is my job going to take that position and just fire me? And then nobody notices that part about your existence. Nobody notices that you just might be going through something specifically on that day related to this social identity. How powerful is just a check-in to acknowledge that I see you. I see that this might be important for you. And I'm here for you. And let me know what you need. And I think just allowing ourselves to be aware of that, if nothing else, just be aware so yeah, yeah. Um, back to what you asked. I just went on a tangent, but back no. to what you asked. No, well, real, real fast, because this is kind of related, but it's um, because there are like those bigger things where, yes, like I can imagine that or, uh, you know, jumping on Twitter a couple years ago and, um, you know, being potentially a transgender individual in the military and learning that, oh, crap, I'm no longer allowed to be here. And I found out via Twitter, you know, um, to to see how that could and Twitter has no like legitimate legal power. So it's like, is this real? Is this not? And just have your life kind of be in jeopardy for a moment um, when it already is. And I think that's what I wanted to say was like and I know, you know, you, you've talked about experiences, too. It's like the the stress that as you know, in a, a minority that you experience chronically it, you know starts to add up mm -hmm. and so like those check-ins are powerful just um you know just for that reason too is like 
I said I was going to take data on it one day just to see how many times a day I'm misgendered, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally or, you know, people that I've told. I was like, it'd be interesting to do just by strangers, which would be 100% of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, um, you know, with uh, people that do know but haven't developed that skill yet or haven't taken the time to develop that skill or um, or then places where I feel fully affirmed, you know, just to see like how that's different, um, you know, or there's, I'm sure you could come up with behaviors that you could measure of what that, what that looks like mm-hmm. um, just to quantify for people a little bit, the level of stress psychologically that goes into that, you know? Yeah. Check-in. So, hmm. and being okay if you are the person that does the check-in, if that person isn't, as responsive as you would want them to be. Don't have an expectation. Yes. Right. What's the function, right, of you checking in? Is it mm-hmm. to make is yourself that... feel better? Mm-hmm. Or is it to actually, you know, see if they're okay? And, and or for them to, to know that you at least see them and want them to be okay. But um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point, Erin. Um, yeah, I th- I'm thinking about like other things, other impacts um, that oppression has had on me and um, definitely like feeling dismissed. I think um, feeling like experiences based on my specific identities, whether it be my black identity, my woman identity or whatever other identity. Um, but those two are very um, salient for me as I've continued to discuss, but um feeling like those experiences aren't important enough. And so I'll give an example. I applied, um, or I was in the process of applying for my PhD program. This was uh, last year. I actually was accepted to a school I was supposed to start in 2018, but decided not to. But this is not the school that I'm about to discuss. Um, While I was in the process of looking for schools, I had a conversation with um, someone who was my, um, someone I knew, I'll say, (laughs) and um he was he's very um important I would I would say so in the field but um I took this idea to to him that I wanted to work on social justice and ABA and criminal justice reform and all this you know stuff that really means the world to me and he says if that paper ever came across my desk I wouldn't even pick it up. Oh my gosh. And wow. I was, it's like that moment of just like feeling like you're, what matters to you is dismissed, but your existence is dismissed. Like these issues are really important to me, my community. And if you were to even see a research paper on it, you would not even pick it up. Imagine what else you would not even pick up or not tune into or what you're already not tuning into. And so feeling definitely dismissed, feeling, um, yeah, I've also felt like I think the impact for me is um, also feelings of like our fear of violence. And we talked about violence already, but for me, I have undergone um, a lot of verbal violence, like a lot of violence, verbal threats, berating, 
um, and threats of physical violence. I activate with other people um, that have undergone threats of physical violence, like bomb threats or like actually like murdering them or their children or whatever. And for me, that that impact, like how how that resonates for me is like feeling unsafe. And it does, sometimes it doesn't matter where you go. You never know. Like I remember a story with one of my justice sisters. She was waiting outside of the train station. And a woman, while she was with her kids, just comes up and like is in her face, like verbally attacking her. And I've had a similar experience being in Penn Station of New York with a man coming up to me and just yelling in my face um, about how I was a disgrace and all of this stuff. Um, and so that's that impacts me, I think. Um, and it's an aversion because I end up being scared. And I think that what that could have done or could do, and sometimes it does do, is it reduces behavior that's relevant to equity and justice, like the behaviors that I could engage in that um, might help me to try to move that needle forward, it could reduce some of those things. So like speaking up, like my voice and like being fearful of saying anything or doing anything that's related to justice because other people are so invested in not seeing that happen. Our other people are invested in continuing the status quo. And um, so those are some of the impacts that I felt and that I still have to deal with, like, as I continue on in this journey of activism. But definitely, um, as I continue on <laughs> in behavior analysis, because I'm fearful that I have to, in my head, and like my um, sociology teacher tried to teach me is that this wasn't just this campus. And so recognizing that it's a larger world issue. And so I think that brings my fear for behavior analysis because we're not on an island. We've all been impacted by this right. stuff. So if these things are happening outside of this field, knowing that it could happen in our field, but also even experiencing like feelings of dismissal or whatever, knowing that the, these things already exist. And I might encounter some of these people on this journey too. So yeah. One, one thing you mentioned was kind of the generalization of, uh, you know, the, the responses that you had that have now been conditioned fear responses that go into other environments or with <laughs> other people. You know, we talk about like uh, bias and how, how that happens, um, you know, and we try to guard against that. But, um, you know, when I was pretty young, um, you know, I've kind of always lived in the country. <laughs> and so uh, there's like the, the stereotypical like country boy truck with the Confederate flag and all that stuff. You know, you can you've seen it in movies, you can picture it. But I was um, kind of run down by one of those. And um, there was a sticker on the back of my car that said love is love. And it was like a rainbow or something like that. Um, and they pulled off to the side of the car, like kind of like drove up behind me and went around to the side and then were, you know, um, using derogatory names and stuff like that. And so, you know, just to talk about the consequences of that, whether you want to think of that experience the next time you see that same kind of car or the next time you're driving down that same kind of country road or something like that. And then it's, mm -hmm. it does, it starts to change your behavior. 
you know, what do I do? Um, and now I have to live in this state of almost panic at times. Um, it changes how I act. It changes um, what environments I will go into uh, or what choices I will make um, in terms of um, like public displays of affection or something like that. Uh, maybe the clothes that I wear or behaviors that I exhibit. Um, I, I said the other day, uh, I was talking about bathrooms. And for me, like bathrooms are kind of a, bi a, a big thing because that's I always feel uncomfortable no matter what. And so I didn't realize it, but um, for the longest time, whenever I would go into a bathroom, I would make sure that I greeted people that I saw if it was appropriate, obviously. Um, but I would use a higher pitched voice so they know I was a female or I'd accentuate parts of my body that made me look female so they would know that I belong there. Because in the past, I would have gotten weird, dirty looks. People would have looked me up and down. I've had people back out of the bathroom to look at the sign to make sure they're in the right restroom. And so because of that, my behavior is changing. And then that started mm -hmm. to generalize every single time to almost where it is unconscious. You know, and we talk about privilege and we, you know, when you can walk into a bathroom or you can walk into a train station without that fear of, of, um, violence essentially, then, um, that's, that's privilege. You know, most mm -hmm. people don't recognize that because they, they, they've never felt uncomfortable, you know? Mm. Yeah. Or they felt uncomfortable, but in a, in a different, in a different sense. Context, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Just, you know, what it's like to just walk outside of your house in the morning and, have that fear like some people don't have to experience that um and that is a privilege um to walk down the street in your neighborhood or to go into a bathroom in a public setting like th these are privileges that some folks never will never have to experience in that way yeah or for these reasons um so we've kind of talked a lot about our fears but i do want <laughs> i feel like you know they're that's okay. Um, and we wanted to be personal today. And I know that I'm not finished talking about my fears. I probably have way more that I can discuss. Um, actually, I do have way more that I can discuss. Um, but I think doing this thing, this show thing, this ABA and social justice thing together is definitely scary for me. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way, well, I think you do because you actually mentioned it earlier. So, did. Um, what are some what are some things that have not been said so far that terrify you to go down this path? Um, I think I had identified the feeling inadequate. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have, like even. Um, I've acknowledged to myself, even like sitting here with you, like I look and I'm like, oh my gosh, you have all this language, all this knowledge. Like I have experiences. I know, I know you're looking at me like that, but it's, <laughs> it's seriously like those are things that show up though. It's like that somebody's going to be like, who is this person? You know, that, that like, yeah, they've experienced this, but what right do they have to, to, to speak to this topic? And it's not that that it's a story that's in my head. You know, we talk about stories that come up in our head that, that then change our behavior. But, um, you know, and then the fear that, uh, will people even listen? You mm -hmm. know, um, I try to stay off of social media or look how many times people have listened to this or, uh, you know, stuff like that. But, um, I think that's, that. I know how powerful this could be. I know 
we've gotten a lot of good feedback after the first episode and I know that that it is but it's I think my fear is do people have the same value in change or are they comfortable enough to be like yo your podcast awesome and then go about their day kind of thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you look like you had something you were gonna say no, I just was relating to that. Uh, I was okay. relating to all that. And, you know, I laughed when you said, you have all this language. And I'm like, that's the biggest fear that I have. That like, I'm getting this wrong. Like, <laughs> that I don't have the language. I have the language based on my past experience working in the yes. social justice sphere. But is that good enough for behavior analysts? And that is one of my fears in what did it's, I tell you the other day? Hang on. Let me think of the metaphor that I thought about the other day. I think a lot in metaphors. I've learned that about myself. What did I say? Okay. So in behavior analysis, we have um, very steep roots in autism treatment, right? Like that's what everybody thinks. I teach in universities. And when people come in, I say, what do you want to do with behavior analysis? And they say, I want to work with kids with autism. And I'm like, that's fantastic. But can we like, I'm going to give you some suggestions. Just bear with me, you know, mm -hmm. and all term long, I'll be talking different examples, like within the medical field or within the social justice or within, um, oh gosh, what was the other one the other day? I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't know, but whatever that is. And I said, what, what you're doing with like the presentations is you're, you're paving a new road. And so when you, you look at that, you're paving a new road to connect to another field that's not there. Or if it is, it's kind of like this, like, dirt, gravel, kind of like maybe matted down grass kind of like road, right? Um, and and so in making that a clear line, like behavior analysis has to autism services, that comes with years. It comes with um, a lot of mess ups, I think, and a lot of leeway because there was a lot of leeway in the beginning for those people, right? Mm -hmm. To say things. And now we can go back and those are the people that, that we follow. But it's like, let's look at their language. Like the and I'm sure they were talking to their colleagues and using terms that, that didn't stick, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if you wanted to speak to that, but I was like, paving roads, like, have you ever seen anybody pave a road? Like, it's messy. Yeah. All the yeah. all the construction equipment, it doesn't, it's not easy. It's not fast. It's a lot of hard work and it's messy, you know? Yeah, I needed that. I needed that in that moment too. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, but I really did. I've I've been taking that with me for the past couple of days and like, it's okay if if I do get it wrong. Like I have always been here to try to create or to help other people become change agents. And so if you are moved by anything that I say, any presentation you sat in on in whatever way, like I don't even care if you're so upset that I got something wrong. If you're that upset that I got something wrong and it and it actually inspires you to find the right way to do it or a better way to do it then that's a win because this isn't about me. Like the work that I do is not about, it's not about ego. It's low ego, high impact. So if we can actually impact our field, impact the world using the science, then we won in some way. And so I definitely needed you to give me that metaphor. And I thank you for being there in that moment of, oh my God, what is this? Right. Um, but that's yeah. the power, but that's the power of check-ins too. Cause you did that with me too over the weekend, like a couple of days or maybe it was earlier this week. And you're like, how are you doing? And, and I, you know, you gave me permission to not be okay and to, to never be okay, essentially. And I think that that was, um, that like hit me at my core and I was like, oh, I, I don't have to like force myself to get over this. 
and giving permission in that moment, I think like maybe my metaphor was powerful for you, that you giving me permission was powerful for me. So, and I, we both come from that understanding, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that other people may not have in that perspective. Um, things that might interact or affect parent training. Um, yeah, these are the, that when I ask about culture, I want that even the microculture, the family, when you close that door, what is that family like? What is their history? Um, what do they value? What are their preferences and beliefs? Um, and so I think that if everyone who cares about social justice, I think we all, most of us rather do, <laughs> then, and it's not just a job, we wouldn't, we could make Boku dollars if we got into like data mining and coding. Like Cambridge Analytica, I'm pretty sure that there was a behavior analyst over there. But um, <laughs> there had to have been. And they were making Boku dollars for a little while. But I think that those of us that would even be listening to this podcast um, really do care. So that's how we start. And then how do we create an intake form that asks questions that get at those so we don't um, come in unprepared. We can modify um you know, does the family have pets? Do they like to take their shoes off at the door? Do um, they prefer, you know, someone with the same ethnicity or race as they? Um, do they prefer if services are delivered when both parents are home daytime or in the evening after work hours? I mean, all of these things go into variables that are related somewhat to a family's belief system. And if you want to call that culture, um, you can. You can also just say it's their belief system that affects um, reinforcement of programming and generalization and maintenance. Uh, what, what else? Uh, funding opportunities? Medicaid. If providers are not accepting Medicaid, we need to start asking why. Um, if the response effort weakens the MO, you know, the motivating operation to not fill out those dang Medicaid applications that probably are set up to have fewer providers. <laughs> um, then let's get together and help each other because I've done it. I could help someone um, who wants to be a Medicaid provider, just doesn't have a network of friends to help them figure out that dang application. Uh, if it's a matter of reimbursement rate, mm, I would say, you know what, diversify your income so that you can have health equity. Because individuals who say it's not enough are contributing to health disparities. Mm -hmm. So I have no defense of that. And I, if anybody has any other ideas, and I understand we ought to have a job, but then diversify your income so that you do not discriminate against individuals in poverty. Um, and then um, that's it. <laughs> are you going to say I something? Love that. Yeah, I'm done. I just wanted to, I mean, pretty much I'm in the state of Maryland. So, um, I've gotten to learn Medicaid a little bit um, over the past year or so. And I have to tell you, I, it's just been hitting a wall because I honestly do feel like it's set up for people to not be able to gain access to services. I mean, the amount of hoops that Medicaid providers have to go through, and I primarily serve Medicaid, um, but to see like how long the wait list is, the requirements that they tack on for the providers. And it just creates longer wait times, uh, creates less providers opting in. Opting in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's having conversations in the background with other, other providers like, we're going to have to like blow this whole thing up because 
families are suffering as a result of it. Um, and it's, it's a lot, but it's, it's really sad to see that the folks who really need it. And I'm even thinking about New York because I just, you know, got to Baltimore from New York and they just had Medicaid wasn't approved for ABA in New York and it just got mm -hmm. approved and to see what they came out with. And it was just like, so the families that need this service have been needing this service will still not get this service because there is no way in heck a provider is going to tap into Medicaid if you're living in New York. Uh, even diversifying income, they're probably still not going to do it. Just knowing like the- You can't diversify the that difference. much. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's really insulting for the people who need who need the services, but then also for the providers too. So it's a lot. And um, the fact that you have expertise and experience just in that, right? I know that you uh, can be super helpful for people across um, the country that are dealing with their own Medicaid issues. I had the privilege of meeting um, Tiffany Marilla, who also put up a fight um, in her state for Medicaid as well. And so, you know, we do have these social justice people that are out there fighting for our kids that are being serviced. And, you know, autism is six to seven percent of the field. And so we, the access to the service is important um, for low income individuals. So. I love that. You just gave me an idea. So like work, work groups, um, powwows, like a workshop, but just because it passed and you know this, um, in fact, I look at you as a social justice role model um, because of your extensive experience. But when I think about it right now, I'm like, okay, so then we show up next year and we bring all those kids and we let them all loose in the state government house. I mean, that's what I did in Virginia. We got a bus full of all the kids with autism and just let them loose in the representative's offices. Yeah. You know, let them see the faces of the individuals that they are, they are choosing not to care about because they see numbers, right? So yeah. there are actually ways for us to map on social justice uh, actions, activities, um, plans, and say, okay, let's use what works in showing up and you kind of shake things up in traditional models um, where we don't, we don't fight against reimbursement rates because we don't talk about money, um, but we should. And Medicaid rates, by the way, are all public. So people shouldn't be afraid yeah. of talking about those. I also think too, um, like voting, you know, yes. big and voting and like signing up people to vote. And, you know, there's major election that's coming up and, and looking at, at candidates and, and what they would be willing to support or what, you know, mm -hmm. what are their beliefs when it comes to all of this? And, um, you know, how should money be allocated? Because I think about like the, the hoops that you all are talking about in terms of Medicaid. Um, if you think of it, increasing response effort. So to save money essentially, but mm -hmm. look at what it's affecting and who it's affecting. And so, um, you know, to look at candidates and if this is a value of yours, um, to put that and to encourage people to vote. I mean, even like volunteering on, on election day to get people to the polls to like you volunteer, Megan, to, to sign people up to vote, you know, to, to register people to vote. And so um, thinking about that as being some sort of direct action to take too, yeah. you know? There's, um, I really wish behavior analysts, though, one last note on that, would um, say they, they would volunteer with some of these groups. Like I would volunteer with Spread the Vote. Um, and their national organization. And they just really need help with data collection, just understanding how to measure their success. And so that's how I got involved. 
Um, and so I think there's opportunities for us that may turn out into paid opportunities. So yeah, sorry, Denisha. Love that. No, I was just gonna say, um, just a little background uh, for you, Megan, and also the listeners. When we initially asked you to come on here, we wanted to talk about diversity versus social justice. Um, and I kind of, it has, Aaron kind of mentioned it with just like the voting component of it. I don't see, I, I see that sometimes what happens is we'll have these conversations and these conversations and diversity is like a hot token word or a hot box word. And it's just like diversity, diversity, great. All these things. And it's like, but it stops there. You, we can't really talk about social justice without talking about politics, the governmental side of things. There's no way that this is not intersecting for you. And I think when we, when we just try to have a conversation of diversity, a lot of us are bringing privilege in the room where we're just like, oh, we're just going to put so many different people together. It's going to be a variety and everything's going to be great. There we go. That's diversity. End of story. No, there's more work that has to be done um, behind that. And that's going to be, who do you get behind? What are you voting on? And the things that you're voting on, that's specifically going to impact the people that you say that you want to see in those rooms. And so it's you. It's a little bit more of like, you have to put your money where your mouth is and you're not going to have, we don't have social justice without politics. It, there's no way, period. And that's one of the first things that I had to learn as an activist. These are not two separate worlds. If I get on the street and I'm talking about this specific uh, topic, guess what? That is in alignment with some government official some elected official. I have to go sit in the office. I have to talk to that person. I have to say, this is important to us. We have to bring, bring more people to you um, because you're going to pass those laws. You're going to pass those rules. Every part of, of the human condition is related back to some policy. So um, it's necessary. And I, I kind of feel like we got, we got to hear some of that. That's initially why we wanted you here because we wanted to talk about the responsibility part that, um, comes with it. We can say all we want. We want to see a more diverse field and people are going to show up in rooms and still experience, you know, um, unequal pay. They're going to still be silenced based on the color of their skin. There, you know, there's not going to be any room for uh, neurodiversity. There's not going to be any room for differences in who you love. Nothing like we're just, because we're just going to, we're just going to put everyone together and, and, and say that's a wrap. So um, I'm going to segue then to a question for I guess all of us, but uh, for you too, Megan, because I, like I said, I believe that there's a, poli a politics part that's um, essential. Um, but have you ever received feedback, whether you know it was solicited from someone or unsolicited, um, specifically from someone in the behavior analytic world saying that we shouldn't be political? Um, and, and what did that look like, if you want to describe that for our viewers? Oh man, that hurts. Um, yeah, yes, I have. And I can tell you right now, I, I have to protect myself uh, because it does bother me so much. Um, I'm very passionate about speaking out for others that sometimes I forget the need to take care of myself. And with that comes protecting my, myself and being safe. So um, I gave a presentation the spring after the 2016 election. And it was when, um, oh my goodness, I think it was something to, to the effect of um, when culture or 
context and values collide or something to that to that end. But basically from a practitioner standpoint, what do we do actually from a supervisor standpoint, what do we do when um, our staff or our employees come to us and say that they believe that they need to, you know, that something's going on with the family, they want to switch off the case. And uh, it comes down to it where it has to do with discrimination. And in this particular instance that I, they gave the talk about um, was race. And in Richmond, Virginia, where I worked, um, it was common to have to drive 30 minutes out into the countryside outside of Richmond uh, on gravel roads to families' homes. And majority of them, I mean, I lived on a gravel road 30 minutes outside Richmond. Um, and you could just, we never locked our doors, right? So, but there, there were probably one or two houses where our therapist would go in and to see a Confederate flag on the living room wall and to see a don't tread on me flag and to know that grandpa wasn't going to come in to the house if my staff, um, who was black, he, he, you know, if he's there delivering services, grandpa wasn't coming to come in the house. He would stay in the garage. And it was a presentation about the things I've learned to just listen rather than jump in and try to say, oh, well, you know, at least you don't have to deal with grandpa um, or have comments and retorts that initially I did. It was uncomfortable. I didn't know how to react. I didn't have a learning history. Um, a particular when Trump was running for president, this brought it out. You know, it was in the South. We're quiet about it versus my family from New York City, um, specifically Queens. And they're loud about it. <laughs> it's just right out there. The the stereotypes and the racist comments just right out in public. Um, but it's quieter in the South, I found. And that really hurt me as a supervisor knowing I was failing my staff by not listening and asking then, how can I help you? Rather than coming up with answers. So in that presentation at the very end, um, I also gave another example of a supervisee who it was very apparent over several sessions that this supervisee did not want to return to the home. And in getting at it and trying to pull the story out of this individual, come to find out that they had Trump flags, that they supported Trump. And it was a trigger for the supervisee to say, I can't serve them. And in fact, in that position, it's almost discriminatory based on someone's politics to say that you refuse to serve them. But at the same time, what about a, a presidential candidate that spews hate, um, says that, you know, the Mexicans are rapists and murderers, that makes fun of individuals with CP with disabilities um, that jokes or doesn't about um, rape and sexual harassment. So in this presentation, one of the members left feedback for me. Um, actually, there are probably three or four, indiv three, three individuals um, who consistently said that they had nothing to learn from the presentation, that I should keep my politics to myself, uh, my liberal white self and that uh, also because I get really worked up, sometimes I curse <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure I said, damn, but if they wanted to hear a woman curse, 
than they would have went to a strip club. You know, these types of comments. And it hurt. I probably, I looked at that recently, but that's, you know, a couple of years, a few, few years now, um, almost. And so it's taken that long for me to be protected enough and know that I'm safe and not going to interact with those individuals and not know who they are. But it happens and it's malicious. So I think one of the things with Uncomfortable um, X and our webinars is that when we allow feedback, we collect names and we tell people that we're going to share who you are with the speakers. And I think that anonymous, great, you got a good response, but it sets up for pain and abuse um, because people can just get away with not being identified and say whatever they want to say to harm and hurt. And that's what those comments were for. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's hard being out there and out front. Uh, I, I know the two of you have, you know, experienced these things. Do you have, I mean, it's nice to know if I have camaraderie in suffering, but do you have stories or like things that how you got through or if you've experienced these things? Yeah, uh, I, you know, I was going to ask you if you wanted to go first, Erin, but um, I think just knowing and that those type of responses are out there, that has been one of the things that have, that I said earlier, reluctantly, like I didn't want to bring this into, a, I didn't want to be part of the social, let me say it, it's not that I did not want to, I definitely wanted to, I always felt the need for it, but I was afraid of what could happen. Um, bring in uh, social justice topics to other people in, in this field is predominantly white. So at some point, we're going to be heavily talking about racism. Uh, you, you have to. It's part of um, it's part of the world. It's one of our biggest problems, right? And so, um, being afraid as a black person, what that would look like, being a talking head, um, and getting in front of a room full of. <laughs> white people and saying we have a problem. Um, I have not received um, any of that type of feedback uh, yet, right? Um, And I've I've been grateful for that, but I definitely have sat in rooms where it's like people are just kind of just like staring at you and you don't know what they are. (laughs) You don't know what's going on in their head and you're like, oh crap, I'm not, this isn't going over well. Um, But in my personal life, in my justice spaces, I've experienced verbal violence from, you know, individuals uh, in the past. And I think I told a story, or maybe I didn't, but um, one time I was organizing uh, a march in New York City to um, commemorate Dr. King's legacy. And I was in Penn Station by myself, passing out flyers, you know, asking people to be present. And this man walked up to me, started yelling at me in my face for passing out these flyers and saying how it's a disgrace to Dr. King's legacy and uh, how racism didn't exist and he wouldn't want this. And it's literally, I'm just standing here giving out flyers. I haven't said anything to anyone except for hope to see you Monday. Um, and so those types of uh, occurrences, they hurt you to your core. Um, and just knowing that there are people that don't mind doing that, right? Trying to break break it down. Um, but and I guess on the opposite side of that, it reminds me of 
why why we do this and why we need to do this in the first place i should say that um and how in my head being a, pr a protector like kind of having that protective spirit of like friends family loved ones and then other marginalized groups like absolutely not if this happens to me or if this happens to you um we can't stand idly by um, and I hear these stories all the time. The one that you mentioned, uh, Megan, about like going to families' home. I've experienced that. I had, I've gone into homes. I've been called a colored. I have been, you know, I had to go in a home and see symbols of racism in a client's home, cotton, like displayed and wondering what's up with that. And, you know, am I okay to be here? Am I safe to be here? Um, some of us, you know, have experienced being called the N-word at work, and that comes up in our field, outside of our field, the mental health field, that has happened. And a lot of us feel like it is now our duty. We have to go back to work because we, we this is what we do. We can't abandon clients, um, even though you're suffering by what you're seeing, right? And so uh, there's so many more conversations that need to be had on the larger scale and even within like, you know, communities that are feeling the impact of families or other professionals who, um, lack a better term, like put them in these scenarios because I don't think that we really know how to handle it um, on any side, you know? I have to be a professional now, so I have to just let it roll off my back, but I'm going home and I'm crying deeply about this. I'm upset about this. And some people aren't upset about it because they're so used to it, but I don't think I ever get used to it. I never get used to it. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I think for me, it's been a, it's been a little different. I don't think anything's been so overt, uh, it, similar to like Megan, what you were saying. And then, um, Denisha, some of the things that you've experienced. I think when I did direct care, I know um, I actually had the privilege to be able to hide, uh, you know, and it still didn't make me feel any better because then I wasn't being authentic. I wasn't being myself. And so there's there's a part of that. But I did have the privilege to be able to, whether it's hide part of my identity, not communicate that. Um, so I think it's a, a challenge in a different way, but there's definitely a level of privilege associated with that. But um, I think most recently it's it's not like this we shouldn't be political kind of thing but it's more or less like an unwillingness to have conversations and so extending opportunities to say hey we'd like to like reach out and have a conversation with you about this and it's um a person saying um disagreeing with with what we what we stand for or um just not even willing to have a conversation, even with boundaries or something like that. And so it's just, in a sense, it's saying, no, we shouldn't be political. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to say what I actually truly believe, or I don't want my perceptions or my beliefs to then impact my success in a way. And so um, they're essentially saying that maybe we should not have those conversations, or I don't want to have it here. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, it's, it's very indirect, um, but it is, it's painful. It kind of hangs with me a lot. Um, and then, and then I think it's just a, a lack of perspective. And so when you approach somebody and social media is the worst place to have these conversations, it's awful. 
you know, it, it really is like, nobody can hear what anybody says. And, um, I think like, if I could have like, wish that people would just be saying, if, if you're not a part of a group or an identity of some sort, you don't have any right to speak to that person's experience. Um, and just getting people to understand that. But then even when you kind of try to educate in a, in a humble way, just dead silence, nothing. So like the lack of engagement, just unwillingness to have a conversation. So I think it, like, that's what I've been met with recently, which is challenging, you know, it just, it's like silence is um, disregarding in a sense. Yeah. I yeah, had similar experiences too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's been something, I guess, that we've, we've been having those conversations in the back end about that at the end of the, of the day, there are people that would prefer to opt out of conversations like these. Um, they're afraid of being exposed to the world, um, or maybe they're, they already know that some of their, you know, beliefs are problematic. Um, and because of that, getting on a mic, talking with the two of us um, might publicize some of those things and people definitely aren't ready for that. And I get that. Um, I guess a large part of the work uh, that we do together and just like outside of this, it boils down to conversations, right? A conversation has to be had at some point. Um, and that's how we try to create some change. Um, so, yeah. It's kind of like a downer. <laughs> I know. I don't. <laughs> at the end. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's yeah. got real low. <laughs> it's the post reinforcement pause, right? It's also <laughs> after Thanksgiving, before the next holiday season, and but no, I don't want to get down the fact that we're we're listen, I Linda, <laughs> like I am super <laughs> excited by having a conversation on a podcast on the internet, which means we are effectively disseminating behavior analytic media, right, to a larger audience uh, about issues that probably, and I can, I'll argue this, have the biggest impact on the effectiveness of treatment, assessment, and the sustainability of our field. Because diversity is important, but diversity within our own science, um, variation, right? We don't want to go extinct as a field. Mm-hmm. And we will if we are not open to learning and just listening. And if that's how we expose ourselves to new ideas or challenging concepts, we will die out. We're not going to be relevant. And so I'm, I am excited. I'm excited that y'all invited me. Um, and that we can have this conversation because that means that we are progressive movement, right? Yeah. Come through, Megan. I feel energy with you saying all of that. Mm-hmm. And talking about the the actual individual occurrences, it's always going to be hard. That's going to be part of the conversation. But um, yeah, thank you for that energy. I receive all of that. Um, and I hope so our welcome. listeners receive it too. I think so. Yeah. Erin, you want to close this this thing out and talk about homework? Yeah, yeah we always give a lot of homework, and we gave a lot of homework last week. Um, so I think we had talked about just continuing that. Um, and even though that Thanksgiving is over, 
We don't want to stop acknowledging uh, perspective taking and honoring Native ancestors, um, you know, just because the holiday has passed. I think even opening that up to different, uh, you know, we talk about Christmas and um, there's issue with saying happy holidays and all that stuff. But I think that's an opportunity for us to kind of explore all of the the holidays that are celebrated around that time, too. So start thinking about some of those things. Um, if there's something that has come up and you don't know what that is, Google it. Find out what it is. Learn about it. Um, and just even start there. We'll have more shows, you know, moving forward uh, about the holidays. But um, I think that's even just a good place. Just thinking about perspective taking. Um, you know, there's that big push to always say, like, think about Christmas coming up. That um, mm -hmm. we have to say Merry Christmas, and and I don't, I I just don't even opt into those arguments anymore, to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of just perspective taking. Um, you know, and not assuming that somebody else uh, celebrates what you celebrate. So it's like, you know, um, happy holidays is inclusive. So that's what I'm going to do. But, All right. um, but yeah, so, um, so yeah, um, so thank you, Megan, so much for coming on. This was awesome. It was a great conversation. I'm sure this won't be the last time we have you on the show. I don't want it to be. <laughs> Thank you all so much. I admire and I, I love what you do. And it's just, it's been an honor and hopefully we didn't overwhelm the audience with all of these things. So yeah, I'll come yeah. back. <laughs> overwhelming really is not that. a bad thing. No, overwhelming <laughs> is not a bad thing either. We always say like when something's uncomfortable, like you need to, to move into that. You need to lean into that because there's something there, you know? So hopefully you it's did. telling you something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, thank you. Yeah. So, all right. All right. All right happy well, holidays. Yeah. Thank happy you. Beautiful. Happy holidays. <laughs> so, thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us. Tune in to the next show. If you are not following us, follow us on Facebook at Beautiful Humans Cast or our Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change. We'll talk to you soon. See you later. It's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a uh... Pretty Easy Podcast. So Pretty Easy Podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today.